Hello and welcome to episode 40 of A Positive Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Before we get into today's show, I want to begin by sharing a little bit about coaching and what coaching is. I get a lot of questions about coaching and how it differs from therapy and if it's a right fit for you. So just a brief summary about coaching. We all need help sometimes, especially when it comes to journeys of life or self-discovery. So whether your goal is to become more confident, to find fulfillment, to find your purpose, whatever it is, it can be pretty tough to figure out how to get from point A to point B. And that's where a life coach comes in. There was a study done in 2019 by the ICF, the International Coaching Federation, and they found that there were roughly 71,000 coach practitioners globally. So like a therapist, a life coach is someone who can help you identify your strengths and your weaknesses and overcome obstacles that are holding you back. But it really depends on what your struggle is, what your issue is, and what you're hoping to achieve to decide what's the right fit for you. So you know what a sports coach is. I'm sure you've heard of that. They help an individual or a team identify a goal, and then they develop a plan for that person or group. It's pretty straightforward, and the same holds true for life coaching. A common misconception is that life coaches provide advice. And a certified professional coach and a member of the ICF, it's not a coach's role to impart wisdom, but rather it's to facilitate the client's own process of connecting to their inner wisdom and making choices about their own actions and next steps from that place of connection. So in that sense, a coach is an unbiased brainstorming partner. You're still the one doing the heavy lifting, but the coach helps you see where you need to get to. Now, coaching can be therapeutic, but there's a major difference between life coaching and therapy. A coach looks at your present, where you are, to help you create the future you desire. While a therapist looks at your past to help you manage your present, because they're connected. So while coaching is action-oriented, therapy is insight-oriented. You're also not going to go to a life coach and get a diagnosis. A licensed therapist is someone who has been trained, gained clinical hours that were supervised by professionals, they've been vetted by a board, And they diagnose disorders. They have the skills and tools to work with trauma and work with short-term behavioral modifications. The important thing to keep in mind is that a life coach is not going to address your clinical issues. A good life coach will know that boundary and will refer you to a therapist if and when clinical work is needed. So I just want to share with you a few testimonials from my website that clients have shared with me. I got this message recently from a 20-year-old client that shared with me that this is what she wrote. Anytime I'm making decisions, I really find myself walking through the 10-10-10 rule that you've shared with me, and I'm able to get to a place of clarity on what the best decision is. Additionally, every situation that's come up that I would have gone to a place of frustration within myself, I was able to step back and realize this is human, and I was able to move on from this difficult moment. I was also able to confidently say no to something even after that person was trying to pressure me from different directions because through our sessions and the work that we did, I realized I cannot and will not please everyone and I have to do what I know is right at the time. And I'm going into this new year, I look forward to continuing to use all the skills that I've learned. Another testimonial. After working with Razel, I know I am more confident in who I am and in tapping into the resources to be the best of me. Razel really worked with me to bring the best potential and helped me really from the resources within positive psychology and Yiddishkeit 
And through the work that we did together, I was able to dig deeper and find the changes I needed to make in myself. Another person shared that she felt that Razel has helped me see the bigger picture in many situations where I find myself struggling. And she is very solution focused and helps empower me to really see the best in myself. So if you're curious to hear about positive coaching and see if it's a fit for you, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. I look forward to working with you. I'm sure many of you are going to resonate with what I'm about to share with you all. Children and technology. It's a battle. In my home, I'm always working on trying to keep my children off of devices, getting them out there, moving, crafts, baking, whatever it is, slime making. I want them off of devices. And to help that, we have a specific screen time that we use. And during the screen time, they're, they're only allowed to go on to specific websites. One of the apps that my children use is Tovito. Tovito is a website and an app that has hundreds of original and quality videos for Jewish boys and girls. And I'm proud to say that today, this episode is sponsored by Tovito. It is designed, Tovito, to be a safer and simpler place for Jewish kids entertainment so that you can literally hand the device to your child for a limited amount of time, obviously, and you can be comforted knowing that there are no ads and no inappropriate videos. As parents, we all know that YouTube, there are so many kids' videos that we may enjoy, but at the same time, there's so much that that is not appropriate for children and all the pop-up ads, etc. But with Tovideo, you won't have to worry about that. What's different about Tovido is that new videos are added weekly and content is produced solely for the subscribers. And we're talking really exciting videos, 3D animation, live action film, and so much more. They have a special video about Maccabees coming out in honor of Hanukkah. And Tovido makes a great gift for the whole family. Bubbies and Zadies, aunts and uncles, if you're looking to get a gift for your nieces and nephews or grandchildren or children, this is a great gift. You don't have to get individual presents. You can get it for the whole family. And there's things and entertainment on there that each child will find suitable for them. My nine-year-old daughter loves Tobido. She will literally have a choice to go onto PBS Kids or Tobido. And I find that she gravitates to it and watches the videos over and over again because she loves how the music, the dancing, the excitement, she's very much interested in Tobido. Usually Tobido is $99 a year, but you can get a special code for your subscription, which is positive. Just type that in as your code and you will get an additional 15% off on tovido.com. So go to T-O-V-E-E-D-O.com, tovido.com and download it today. You know, the cool thing is Tovido is available on almost every platform. So your smart TV, your website, your iPad, all the apps, it's available for download. You could put it on your device and then take it while you're traveling. And it's really a great tool. So thank you to to Tovito for sponsoring today's episode. And I encourage you to go check it out. I'm sure your children are going to love it as much as mine. And now for today's episode, episode number 40 with Divi Bogart. Divi is a proud Bishrifka alumni. She's a Yale graduate and she is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And she specializes in eating disorders and associated mood and trauma related health conditions. And she really has a very good understanding of what people are struggling with and how to help them. 
She's very passionate about a recovery and prevention-based approach to wholesome mind-body health. And in today's episode, I sit down with Divi and we discuss some ideas and concepts surrounding mental health, eating disorders, anxiety, and more. And if you're interested in getting in touch with Divi, you can email her at divikamanprn at gmail.com. The email is on my show notes and you could reach out that way through her. I think that today's conversation will really help educate ourselves, bring more awareness to this topic of eating disorders and overall mental health challenges that people struggle with. So I hope that you enjoy. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Hello, Divi Bogart. I know that you're a proud Base Rifka alumnus. True. Graduate psychiatric practitioner and specializing in eating disorders and associated mood and trauma related health conditions. You have led therapeutic programming for a number of um, mental health programs in Connecticut, and you are now consulting and treating eating disorders at Newport Academy, which is a family-based residential program that offers kosher meals while running a virtual comprehensive mental health practice. And I know that you're passionate about recovery and prevention-based approach to wholesome mind, body health. And I know that you live in um, New Haven, Connecticut, where my sister lives as well. And um, with your husband, Rabbi Bogart, and your four children as well. So this is a really great opportunity. I'm very excited because I usually have like an idea of what I want to cover. And um, today I'm just kind of free-flowing. I'm just going with what comes to me. And I'm very curious to hear. So let's start with that first question I had. What is a psychiatric practitioner? Yeah, so it's actually, I'm actually a psychiatric nurse practitioner, which essentially means I went, my education is in nursing. After I did my undergraduate here at Yale, and then I went through their nursing program. So I became a nurse. And then I specialized in psychiatric nursing. Psychiatric nursing is not so different from psychiatry. But we might say that it's informed by the nursing approach, which is caring for the full body, mind body. So any nurse practitioner is bringing their experience as a bedside nurse to the work with the mind. Okay, makes sense. Easy enough to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, So you work at this residential program. Is this for Jewish, non-Jewish patients? Tell me more about that program. So sure, I'll tell you, and there's some updates. So I actually consult for their boys, The they have a boys campus. And so I actually work with boys who are struggling with disordered eating that are in their comprehensive program for mood disorders. So it's not specifically for Jewish people, um, but they do get uh, referrals from the Jewish community and cater to that when it comes up. Uh, I also work at um, New Shema in New York City, I do some assessments for them and they are providing ketamine for mood disorders. Yes. And then in my own practice, I do primarily psychotherapy actually, um, and with some medication management and sometimes with ketamine, if it makes sense for the person. Right. I heard that podcast that you did with Ellie Nash on ketamine. Yeah. Fascinating. I've mm-hmm. never understood it. It sounded, um, and I do have some questions about that, which I want to get to as well. Sure. I, it's so fascinating to think that eating disorders are 
male and female. Like I always think of eating disorders as more of a woman's thing, but I'm sure there are many men and boys yeah. with wholesome and proper eating. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what's exciting about the work that I've been doing on the boys campus with the team there is over the past few years, it's been very obvious that we, it hasn't been addressed, not because it doesn't exist, just because we don't really think about it very much. So once we started to pay attention, we were noticing a number of boys who really could use some focus on that part of their treatment. So it does look a little bit different oftentimes, not always, but sometimes with boys, the focus may be on uh, more of athleticism, like wanting to be very fit. That's just one example, but it's, it's not actually gender specific, right? We tend to associate it with young girls, but eating disorders show up in all types of people and all stages of life, actually often later in life too. Can you heal from an eating disorder, recover from it completely? Or is it something that you're going to struggle with the rest of your life, similar to an addiction? Yeah, so I firmly believe that full recovery is possible. And when I say full recovery, that a person can be free of disorder and can be in a place that is healed. I don't think the experience ever goes away. I think it becomes part of us, maybe similar to grief. It's like the pain doesn't disappear. It is a part of you and a part of your life experience, but at a certain point it becomes part of what makes you strong. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually recently saw like a picture of grief and that not that we outgrow grief, we kind of grow with it and become like, we become bigger so that the grief doesn't really change size, but we grow with it. So it's part of us, but like we grow bigger than it and greater than it. So it's, it's always like a part it's there, but we kind of are bigger than that. Um, yeah. I mean, I speak from my professional experience and my personal experience. You know, I think anyone who's a healer is a healer because they've been through something that drew them to this work. So, you know, I'm in recovery from an eating disorder and I, there was a time in my life when I didn't think recovery was possible or I thought I would live with it my whole life, but it would become manageable. But the journey that I've taken for myself and with working with others has really showed me that people can come back from really anything. And sometimes it doesn't happen. You know, sometimes there's, we see a course of recovery that is, ends up somewhat tragic, but sometimes we see amazing, miraculous, full recovery people are living with a freedom they never thought they'd be able to have. That's fascinating. First of all, thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. I think that really changes it for people when they hear that they're I'm listening to somebody who themselves has struggled with this and has kind of gained full recovery and then taken that and helping and is taking it to help others. It's, that's a beautiful thing. And it really kind of changes it, you know, mm -hmm. it differently. Do you, are you comfortable to share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I so mean, how I, old were you just give us like a background of what your experience with this eating disorder was. Yeah. Firstly, I'm going to say that eating disorders are interesting. It's an interesting name, you know, because let's say depression, anxiety is referring to an emotional state, right? Eating disorders are called by a behavior, right? So the name doesn't really tell you much about what's going on in the person's inner world, right? Because clearly people who have eating disorders, they don't have a problem with eating per se. It's like they know how to eat, right? We all know what someone 
who is, let's say, struggling with anorexia needs to do. They need to eat more. But connecting the dots is a problem, not because they don't know how to eat, but because something else is going on that's internal. And the name doesn't give you any sense of what that is. So it's a broad range of different. Every person who has an eating disorder is so unique. Like when I meet someone for the first time to do an assessment, I know nothing about who they actually are. What is their actual pain, right? What are the barriers to being connected to their body in a way that every child is? right? Child can eat when they're hungry, stop when they're full. So I have no idea what's disrupted that until I get to know the person. But for myself, I mean, I was, yes, I am a proud Base Rifka graduate. And actually this question that you're asking me is interesting because I was in Crown Heights last week and I bumped into a teacher who is a close mushbi of mine during high school. And she asked me, you know, about how I got into mental health and I said something along the lines of, like, you know, when I was working with you and you were my mashpia, I was really struggling with an eating disorder. And she said, we suspected that. <laughs> but in those days, it was like we would suspect it, but we didn't really talk about it. We didn't really know what to do. So I started to struggle from a very young age, like around 10 or 11. And um, it was primarily re restricting my eating and some of that was natural, like wanting to fit into the social group in Basurf Guy. I'd moved from Muncie to Crown Heights and I didn't really fit in socially. And so some of it was figuring out how to dress cute and how to be skinny enough to be popular at the time. Um, but then it took on a life of its own. And um, I went through all the phases. In, in seminary, I struggled more with... Um, restricting and binge eating. And then after I got married, it was, there was all of it, restricting, binging, purging. And um, it took me a really long time to navigate it and figure out what could help. There were many years that I thought there was no salvation. So um, I guess given the time that I was going through it was kind of before we started to talk about mental health and before resources were really available, in a way that strengthened me because I didn't look at it as a pathology. Like I didn't identify like, oh, I have an eating disorder. I just knew I had to keep figuring it out. But it took me so long to figure it out because I was doing it from scratch that working with other people today is so rewarding because there's so much I've had to figure out by myself that now is, wide, now is uh, widely available, now is known. I'll give you a simple example. Like there were times when I thought, how is it possible that someone who was like, I was so controlled about what I would eat. I, and I was perfectionistic about it when I was young for many, many years. I never made a mistake. I always ate exactly what I was supposed to. How is it possible that now I'm a young mother and I am binge eating and I can't stop? Like, it seemed crazy to me. Like I had no way to understand what was going on. Of course, now when I talk to people that I'm working with, it's very, it seems very obvious that if you deprive your body of basic nutrients, when you're young, maybe for five, 10 years, your body's going to be able to compensate at a certain point, it's just going to give out and it's going to figure out how to get food into your system, no matter what, doesn't that make, it seems so obvious to me now, but it took me years to figure that out for myself. Yeah, that's incredible. And also, you know, I'm not, I don't think this, you, you don't look that old. We're not talking <laughs> that many years ago. And um, 
it saddens me to think that we didn't have our, our staff, our teachers didn't know what they could do to help. Quick interruption here for a moment with Anchor. Thank you for listening and we'll be right back. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for listening. And now back to today's episode. Going back to what you said, you learned as you went along. Did you ever mm-hmm. had a program? Did you ever have to go into the hospital? Were you, you know, was it just something that you, you kind of learned the tools and then helped yourself? Yeah, I mean, so my family was very attentive and they did their best to be very responsible at a time when nothing was really known about mental health. So I had medical treatment from a young age, from like 11 or 12. So I, I was followed by medical professionals. They just didn't have understanding of the emotional component. So they didn't provide any therapeutic support. So let's say as an example, like I was a perfectionist. So everything was very black and white. You know, when I realized that I was supposed to watch, you know, in my mind, I thought I was supposed to watch my weight. I said, okay, I'll start eating nothing that has any fat in it. You know, only, you know, that was how I thought as a child. So they didn't inter, they weren't able to help me with the ways in which I was thinking. So let's say, Today in therapy, some basic intervention, it might be helping someone create flexible ways of thinking. Like if they're thinking in black and white terms, we're going to help them think in more flexible ways. Like if you're thinking, let's pause for a second. So if let's say you were 10 years old and you were like, "Mm, I want to be thinner. I don't want to be the chunky. So you you were 10, you didn't have the understanding of that. But if a parent was educated and knew this and said, okay, I'm noticing that she's restricting here let's get into, let's get, let's find somebody to help her with this. And let's say you went into a therapist and they could help you say, you know, well, what is it that you're trying to do? And then you can say, well, I'm going to cut it all fat. So I don't have to deal with that. And then you could, it could have been explained Am yeah. I correctly. Is yeah, that exactly. Exactly. So there are opportunities to explain, get to know the child, get to know the ways in which they're thinking about the world, get to know the ways in which they may be struggling that are not so obvious, right? It's oftentimes a child looks happy-go-lucky enough, you know, they have friends, they're getting decent grades, but until you sit down and get to know them and speak with them, you're not going to really hear the areas in which they're struggling that they may not be comfortable telling you up front. So there was a lot of, to answer your question, there was medical treatment back then. Um, Not the kind of resources, not the kind of psychological resources we have today. Like teaching stuff. Even 15, 10 years ago, they did not treat um, eating disorders with therapeutic. It was more about the food and how to get the food in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even, even today, some of the programs are very focused on behaviors. Even though there are therapeutic elements to the program, some of the programs are very what we might call behavioral. How are we going to get you on a meal plan? How are you going to get the food in your body? And that's really important because without food in your system, your brain and nothing is going to work properly. So the behavioral part is really important because sometimes we spend all of this energy focusing on a person's internal work, psychological work, but if they're not eating enough, their brain is just not going to work properly. So you may end up going in circles, but both are important. The behavioral work and the depth, what we might call depth work, like inner work, psychological work, 
And some programs really gloss over that a little bit. That's so that's kind of mm -hmm. shocking to hear. Yeah. So if a parent is looking for a program for their child right now, let's mm -hmm. say somebody's listening is, um, how are they to know a program is more focused on behavioral than on, you know, for the therapeutic model? I mean, today, most programs do have uh, trauma-informed therapeutic modalities. And why would we be talking about trauma when we're talking about eating disorders? Because it's well known that eating disorders very often are a manifestation of complex trauma. So complex trauma might be an event or a traumatic experience, but it might also be more subtle developmental trauma, some way in which a child's needs were missed. Um, and that's not necessarily anybody's fault, but it often needs to be addressed. So most treatment centers today do address trauma and emotional reg emotion regulation. Uh, so of course, some are better than others. And really, it's very hard for me to give people advice as to where to go because you really have to get to know the providers. In my view, a treatment is only gonna be as good as the providers who are offering the treatment. So word of mouth or people who have been through the program that have had results or calling them yourself and speaking to some of the clinicians and getting a sense of if you trust them, what do you, how can they explain what their approach is? Does it make sense? Right. It's so interesting because eating disorders are like the symptom kind of, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. and, right. And there's more going on underneath. So it's usually they're dealing with something else that's, that's going on. Is the usual approach, I mean, I'm not, I'm curious, medication, like do people that let's say have an eating disorder usually also struggle with a mood disorder mm -hmm. and then so helping deal with that can help the eating disorder or is that they're two separate things completely? People who have eating disorders often end up being put on medications, despite the fact that it's known that medications are not particularly helpful for eating disorders. It is true that sometimes you're using medications to treat like an, a, a, a depression or anxiety that's happening at the same time. But the thing with eating disorders is that they are often contributing to the depression or the anxiety. So if somebody is not eating well, you can't really give them an accurate diagnosis of depression or anxiety. You know, the expression in medicine, like you can't be, uh, you can't call a code on someone if they're cold. Like if someone is frozen, you don't actually know if they're alive or not. You have to, they have to be warm and then you can determine their status. So similarly, you have to be fed to determine if someone is depressed or anxious. Because how do we feel when we're hungry or deprived of nutrients? I mean, we all know the expression hangry, but especially yeah. if you're chronically deprived of nutrients over time, you can feel very dysregulated. So oftentimes people are put on medications. Sometimes they have short-term benefits. Like maybe if someone is so agitated or anxious that they can't sit down and eat, giving them something to help them get calm enough to get the nutrition they need and then they can heal and then they don't need the medication anymore. But this is part of what I, I do as a prescriber is working with people who have eating disorders and wanna be or are already on medications to really assess like what is the function of this medication for this person. So we're not just throwing a medication at them if it's not really helping them in a specific way. Okay, that makes sense.
what about you know young younger you know we're seeing more now that there are teens and tweens younger you know 10 11 year olds that are struggling with depression and anxiety and i don't know I mean, I don't know much about eating disorders, but I do know that I see, I hear a lot from people that are saying that their children are struggling. And what I'm saying is a lot of them struggle with sleep. Mm -hmm. What can, what can parents do for a child that's struggling with, you know, anxiety or worry, excessive worry. And at the same time, this child is having a hard time sleeping. I mean, I've heard parents say they give their children melatonin, mm -hmm. but after a while it doesn't work. Right. I know the that I, I've learned about this. I've read about how important sleep is. Mm -hmm. what is your, what's your opinion on what, what can parents do in your experience to help their children get the sleep so that they could help them? You know, I think sleep's a part of it when they get their sleep, yeah. they can, then they can eat right. Then they can, you know, function right. But the sleep is a very important piece. Yeah. I mean, sleep, air, food, these are basic necessities. So it seems so simple. It's like, we just need to help someone sleep, eat, but we see when these basic processes get disrupted, there's often no easy answer or quick fix solution. So if we step back for a minute and we think about eating disorders, depression, anxiety, what does this all have to do with each other? It's like, oftentimes when we think about mental health, we think about the mind, but we are not heads and bodies that are disconnected at the neck. We are one mind, body, mind, heart, body, soul, we're one being. So oftentimes when a person is not able to sleep or eat, which is what we're talking about, their system is stuck in what we know as fight or flight or freeze mode, right? Like there's a state of hyper arousal. This is why we talk about it in terms of complex trauma, because it makes sense to us that if someone for whatever reason doesn't actually feel safe, we're not talking about in their mind, but in their body, their body doesn't feel safe. Then they are prepped to do what people do when they don't feel safe, which is run away, flight, face the threat, fight, or shut down, freeze. And if, the, and if your body is in those modes, you can't really relax. Like in order to sleep, you have to be able biologically to go into a completely vulnerable state. When you're asleep, there's nobody looking, you're not protecting yourself. So when we as healthy humans take for granted feeling safe in our body, feeling comfortable in our skin, then we just naturally follow a circadian rhythm 24 hours. When it's light, we wake up. When it's night, we sleep. But we're taking for granted our emotional and psychological and spiritual safety. And when that gets chipped away at, for whatever reason, there are so many factors right? There's like biology, there's temperament, like our character and our vulnerabilities, there's trauma, there's relationships, so many ways in which this sensitive system gets disrupted, then we have to figure out what makes this child tick. And how do we get them back to a state of being relaxed, feeling safe, a state where their mind and body are connected to each other. I just want to bring up that I think that some of what we might call, you know, the word trauma is, is, is a very big word and it can be used in many different ways. Um, but if we think about it in a broad way, like trauma, something that disrupts your health and well-being, like in a very, very broad way, 
you know, then we know that in our way of life in America and in our Jewish communities, there can be a lot of reasons why we might become disconnected from our bodies. You know, we might start living in a way, it kind of locked up in our heads. And so the process of healing for each individual is so unique. Like you can't create a one size fits all, but it is a process of coming out of our heads and back into our bodies. And if our head and body are connected, we're going to be able to feed ourselves. We're going to be able to sleep. For a parent whose child is in, who's in sleeping, it's, a, it's, it's, it's so simple. It's such a simple thing that needs to happen, but it can also be so sensitive. And it really requires looking at the situation and navigating trial and error, really understanding and really figuring out what it's gonna take for this person, child to be able to be relaxed and connected to their body. So helping to figure out what is going to be helpful to this child. Like for some children, I've noticed with some of mine, when they exercise a lot and they're running around, they sleep better. Yeah. In the summertime, there's no question. They're swimming, they're running, they sleep better. So maybe it's this child needs to move more and need to put in, figure out how to get movement in their life. Um, for another child, it could be they need to have less screen time, which mm -hmm. I would say for the child. Um, so that they can actually relax enough and have that ability to decompress and not have that blue light and that constant d d d d noise around them and helping yeah. them calm and get ready for bed. So am I hearing correctly that you're saying that a parent should really kind of figure out, help their child figure out what can help them get their mind and body together aligned in a way that's more calm, whatever it may take to mm -hmm. help get to that point. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yes. I mean, with sleep, it helps to take the pressure off because if we focus too much on trying to sleep, then that becomes something to be anxious about. Yes. So it helps to just focus on being relaxed in bed and really figuring out where can we better meet our needs, our own or our child's needs. Sometimes we overlook really obvious things like you just mentioned, like technology and our sensitivity to it maybe not just in the bedroom, but anytime in the evening or even during the day, it impacts us. Um, movement, right? Like you said, with eating disorders specifically, oftentimes people say they have insomnia, but they've been chronically deprived of nutrients over time. Like the same, you know, you're not going to fall into a deep sleep if you're hungry or chronically malnourished. And I just want to say that there's this idea that eating disorders are not particularly common, but we all know that that can't be true because we all know people or we struggle ourselves with disordered eating. So we're in a culture where eating according to a diet or eating or avoiding whole bunch of types of foods is normalized. So sometimes a person has no idea that they're struggling with disordered eating because what they're doing is normal in our culture or our communities, but it's actually not what their body needs. Sometimes we're just not getting nutrient dense foods. We're eating highly processed foods and it's not necessarily some people's systems are more sensitive to that than others. So I know that I didn't set out to start eating like greener food, but I know that naturally in my process of recovery, I started to change the way I ate from less processed foods 
to more whole foods, cooked foods, foods that you serve on a plate that look like foods that have different colors in them. And I remember that for so many years, I used to have really, really dry skin. My hands were all cracked and I would keep putting moisturizer on them, you know, just more and more and more moisturizer. And a few years into my recovery, I realized like I never have to use moisturizer anymore. So there are so many people out there who will sell us like supplements to fix our health, but sometimes you don't even need supplements. Sometimes you have to go through the process of figuring out like what foods actually feel good when I eat them. I love that. Mm -hmm. You know, what's coming up as you're speaking for me, and I want to hear your opinion on this. You said malnourished for so many years or malnourished because they're eating disorder. And that's why A, B, or C is happening. I think of eating disorders, and I think many people do, as somebody who's restricting their eating. When you say, what about somebody who is binge eating and is, you know, extremely overweight and are, they're not necessarily malnourished. Yeah. They're, so they, they are, they're eating, they're eating well. I mean, they they're are. Eating a lot. so right. are they missing nutrients? What is it that is, is, is that considered also an eating disorder? Yes. So they're malnourished in a different way because they are not necessarily getting the nutrients their body needs and getting an excess of foods that our body doesn't need also creates dysfunction in our system. Our body wants homeostasis. It wants balance. So it wants enough of what it needs and not excess of what it doesn't need. So anywhere on the spec, there's a spectrum, right? And there's balanced eating, mindful eating, wholesome eating, intuitive eating. And that's where our body wants to be. That's a state of alignment. But on either end, whether we are not allowing ourselves food or not able to feel satisfied from food, those are different types of disrupted eating. I don't even love to call them eating disorders because it feels pathologizing to me. So it's just, we know when we're happy with our bodies and our relationship with food, and we deserve to be happy with our, those relationships. So if we're not, it deserves our attention, right? And also oftentimes people think people who binge eat, it's a problem that they want too much. But I don't think that's really true. I think on either end of the spectrum, we are not getting, we're not allowing ourselves to feel nourished and satisfied. So people who are restricting are not allowing themselves to eat, but people who are binge eating are often feeling deprived too, because their whole lives, like they've been thinking, I need to eat less, or people have been telling them, you need to lose weight, you need to eat less. So they still feel deprived. So oftentimes when you experience binge eating or speak to people who binge eat, they don't find the binge particularly satisfying. It's not like they eat it and they're like, oh, that was amazing. They eat it and they feel bad. Right. So they're still in the same problem. They're not actually getting satisfied. And what about people that actually are eating like that and saying that was amazing? I love it. <laughs> I'm just curious. Well, there's I that know people like that. They love it. They love their food and they don't feel yucky. I mean, they don't like that they're overweight, but they they love the way it feels and they love the food and they love they love it all. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for eating for pleasure when it makes sense and when it's working for you and your body. And sometimes we have these ideals of like, we should only be eating 
for good nutrition. We shouldn't be eating for comfort. And I don't think that's true. I think it's very normal to eat for comfort as long as it's working for you and your body. Like there are many ways we can know something's not working for us. Sometimes we don't like it or we want our body to change. Other times the doctor tells us, you know, or we see we have high cholesterol. So like these are communication messages from our system that it's not quite working and something needs our attention. Right. So, so I have a question for you. Um, I don't know much about intuitive eating. I've heard about it. Um, yeah. And what I understand from intuitive eating is you follow your body, but the people that I see that are talking about intuitive eating seem to be, you know, not look, they don't, to me, at least it doesn't seem healthy. Like, it seems like if I'm in the mood of a sandwich, so I'm going to eat a sandwich right now, but what if that's not what I need? My body, maybe my question, I guess, is, is that is intuitive eating really in sync with what we desire or are we really listening to our body's message? So maybe you could just help me out. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I think intuitive eating is great. I also think it can be misunderstood because for some of us, it can be hard to follow our intuition. Like, is my intuition what my body actually wants or is my intuition my whim? like what I'm in the mood of, and it's actually not what my body wants. So in order to eat intuitively, we have to go through our healing process so we can be in a state of alignment where we can know what we actually want, right? Like this reminds me of the Tanya, right? Like what is the problem with a Taiva, right? We, I know that I went through a lot of processes around this because maybe at some point I internalized not to listen to my Taiva is not to have pleasure. And that's not what it means. We deserve pleasure. And Hashem gives us pleasure in many different ways for our benefit. But we have to know the difference when the pleasure is for our growth and for health versus when the pleasure is self-defeating. Like it's a way of us giving into a whim in the moment, but the long term, the long view isn't good for us. So Intuitive eating is not necessarily as simple as it sounds because it requires us to be able to center ourselves, ground ourselves and ask ourselves, is this what I actually want, right? Not just a whim that's gonna hurt me in some way, but something that I actually want. So I guess what what I'm hearing you say is that intuitive eating is first having this self-awareness of really what is coming up for you, like kind of doing your own work and then you really understand what, which part like, where's it coming from? Is this part of yeah, but I think pleasure or do I need this? I think good practitioners who are, who are facilitating intuitive eating well are helping people to work toward that. I don't think you have to be in a state of perfect alignment to work with intuitive eating. I think as you work on intuitive eating, you're also doing your own work to really be able to hold yourself accountable and center yourself. But in a basic, basically, like in a more basic way, intuitive eating is eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. Like if we ever forget what that means, we could look at a young child, right? Many of us have young children at home, right? And we know when they're hungry, they want to eat now, right? And when they're full, they don't want anymore. So it's very simple at the end of the day, but there are so many forces that get in the way of that simple, beautiful cycle, cultural, emotional, mind. And so we're really trying to come back to a very simple state of being connected with our body's cues 
the root, the way there can be complex for some of us. Also, the body is wired to take it to eat. Like it's, it's like the most basic necessity, right? So there are so many hormonal systems surging through our bloodstream, helping us eat when we need to. And so the process of being able to eat intuitively is not learning a new way. It's peeling away the layers that are covering over our body's wholesome, natural instincts that are perfectly hardwired to help us do what we need to. Well, you see children, but you do see children that overeat too. Like you can, you can see, I mean, I, I, I have a child who only eats when she's hungry. And then I'll say like, well, you're going to, we're going on a trip. And I, I'm, I hear myself like telling her like, you should eat more because we need more. And she's like, I'm just not hungry now. So I'm like, I guess that was not so helpful to her to tell her she needs to have it for later. Right. Right. So I heard, like you're saying following, um, I, I would say use a healthy child. That a healthy you. child in a healthy environment, because I know that when I uh, take my children out in nature, like we go on a hike or we go to the beach and I bring wholesome food. I know that they're, they eat very differently from when we're having a, you know, one of those days at camp or school where there's just processed food available and they're not really moving around in nature. So we're yeah. talking about getting back to the way a healthy child responds in a healthy environment with access to nutritious food, because sometimes in the intuitive eating world, the discussion of the quality of the food is not so much a part of it. It's like eat whatever you want and all foods are good foods. There is truth to that, but there's also truth to the fact that some foods are actual foods, like whole foods. Our body actually processes them as a whole food and they come with all types of micronutrients that help our body recognize what they are. Whereas a highly processed food is just not the same. Our body doesn't recognize it in the same way. So it's not that it's bad, it's just going to have a very different impact on our body. Yeah. How can we help our children with helping preventative, like taking preventative measures so that they don't end up with an eating disorder? You know, you'll see yeah. like children that are, you know, young and they don't want to eat vegetables. They don't want to eat fruit. They want to eat the processed food. Okay. You can limit it as much as you can. The question is, is you don't want to make a big deal about it. But when your child turns to you and says, why am I fat? Or I have my belly's fat and they're just seven years old. You're like, this isn't, uh, this isn't good. Mm -hmm. I okay. think we have to, we have to work on ourselves. Like we have to actually feel confident in our bodies and feel beautiful and proud of who we are. And that's going to mean more to our children than anything anyone else says or anything that we say. Uh, I think we also have to make conscious choices about what we want our homes to be like, like, I am very against singling out any one child and saying, you don't need that. Like if we want to make a change, we have to make a change in our home. And even if there's going to be all sorts of processed food out there, like if home base, and I'm not saying processed foods are bad. I'm just saying we're looking for balance. If home base is a balanced place, I think our kids are going to be able to weather what they are exposed to out there. You know, whether it's, a and, and if our kids are coming to us and saying, this person called me fat, well, first of all, it's worth celebrating that they felt comfortable coming to us and saying that. And if we're in a healthy place, we're gonna find the response that that child needs. That doesn't bring too much attention to what was said. 
but helps what the child. Be, what would be the, the right response? I'll tell you what comes up for me when I when I hear a child say this, and I have had my my daughter say this to me. I'll say, first of all, I'll say that must have really hurt. I'll validate their feelings mm-hmm. and ask them like, how did that feel for them, and things like that. And then I'll say to them, and she'll say, well, it's true, I am. My stomach's big or something. And I'll be like, well, let's let's talk about that. What does the stomach really supposed to look like? It's supposed to be rounded. It's supposed to be soft. It's yeah, not I it's I beautiful. I mean. Right. I don't have a flat belly, but I'm not bad. I'm beautiful. Right. I mean, my daughter did come home and say that. And I think it's an opportunity to teach our children about how, how our bodies work. Like fat is there to protect your organs and keep you alive. Like it's not a bad thing. Nope. And it's not a bad word. And if someone is saying a negative comment, poor kid, maybe they're going through a hard day and they can't figure out what to do with themselves other than say mean things to other kids. But what is fat actually for? It's there to protect our liver and our kidney. And you know, when we have babies, the only way we're able to do that is because we have fat on our body. So it's worth celebrating. I think we have to take the association of fat being a bad word. So we cringe every time we say it away and teach our kids to be resilient and to know what fat actually means. I also think that our children can read through us. So if we're struggling with our own body image, even if we say it, it's going to come through. So what I'm hearing you say is that we need to start by working on ourselves. A hundred percent. I mean, that's exactly what we need to do because if we work on ourselves, we can focus on being parents, which boils down to being present for our children, right? Physically, psychologically, and emotionally. The only way we can do that is if we are present within ourselves. And 100%, especially when it comes to body image, our children will read through everything that we say and they will sense how we feel in our own skin. Yeah, this is true. So I wanna go back for a second and talk about ketamine for a second. Um, so. How is ketamine different than ayahuasca? First of all, let's start okay. with that. And then, okay. and then let's start with that, yes. Well, the most practical difference is that ketamine is legal. legal and ayahuasca, <laughs> and ayahuasca right. is not. Um, ayahuasca is also a plant, um, vine and uh, chacruna leaves mixed together. So it's in its pr- pretty unprocessed form. Um, ketamine is a drug that was synthesized in a laboratory in the fifties or so. Um, so it's what we might consider a chemical, right? Um, they, why are they, why are we talking about them together? Right? Because they both have what we would call psychedelic properties, right? Yes. And, and the people that I know that, I mean, I, I know some people that have, have done ayahuasca mm-hmm. and I've actually seen incredible change in these people. What I noted about these people is that or notice, I should say, is that they've done a lot of work. These people have been in therapy for like many years and kind of were in a space where they couldn't get past it. And then when they did have this experience, it kind of really shifted them to a whole new level, to a whole new place. Right. I'm not trying to promote um, psychedelics here. I'm just, I'm curious to understand um, what, what, what's happening there. Why yeah. is why is this having an impact on people in, in that kind of way? I think they're worth noting also in a conversation about eating disorders, because I do think that eating disorders are often a manifestation of a wound that is very young, very deep, often, maybe not always. So at some point in people's process, 
they might get to a point where they really want to get to the bottom of it. Uh, psychedelics are so, there's so much discussion about them for a reason, because they have, they offer a paradigm that we may not have through other means. So let's say psychiatric medications, like a Prozac for depression. The idea is to lower the symptom of depression, to reduce the symptom. But with psychedelics, it's a different approach. And psychedelics literally means mind opening, right? So we are like peeling away layers of the onion and we don't know what's gonna come up when we do that. Another way of thinking about that is we all have a way we look at the world, right? Like a default mode is what they would call it. Scientific terms, default mode, where our brain defaults to. And that's like my glasses. Like, let's say I was born with pink glasses. Like I would look around the world and I would just think that's how it is until I took off my pink glasses. Then I would realize, oh, it's not right. The color scheme is different. So with psychedelics, it, there are so many ways we can explain what's happening, but an analogy might be like peeling off that, those lenses and seeing your whole reality from a way that is not stuck in your conditioning and your programming or peeling away the layers of the onion, being able to access pain that we are protecting ourselves from. So it's stuck like a ball that's bouncing around our whole system. It's just bouncing around. We can't really get open it up or let it go. And when we quiet down the protectors who are protecting us from our own pain, the pain can come up. And then it's really not so bad. It's just pain and we can process it and release it. Ketamine is different from some of the other psychedelics. Maybe it's a more out of body experience. Your body can almost feel numb or you can almost forget it's there. And you're very much in your, uh, maybe a more existential, spiritual mind, spirit realm. Can you share with us any stories of people that have had struggled with eating disorders that have had found um, ketamine to be helpful? Yeah, I, I have seen really powerful results for the right person in the right time. Because like you said, oftentimes people do well when they've already done a, quite a bit of work, like they have some stability and resources and insight, and then they're taking it to the next level. So um, actually, I, there's a, a woman who is now facilitating ketamine sessions, and she was struggling with bulimia, binging and purging for over a decade. And she was able to stop completely uh, only after doing a series of ketamine treatments. And it wasn't, it's hard for me to describe her whole process, but it was very clear that she was processing emotional material, psychological material, even spiritual material that she could not process before. And what she noticed practically was that she became much more, uh, connected to intuitive eating, to being able to eat when she was hungry. And when she was full and feeling urges to binge, it was a much slower urge. Like she was able to pause and take the time she needed to center herself and do something else instead. And she just couldn't get that kind of responsiveness before. I also worked with a person, I'll keep it very vague, but the years of anorexia, including institutionalizations and very quickly into the ketamine treatment, 
she recognized that around the time that her eating disorder started, it was the same time that there was you know, a major loss in her family. And those dots had not connected for her before. And she also realized that from a very young age, she had heard about the gas chambers and just become very terrified of the Holocaust and just felt very impacted by it. And she never connected the dots before that she became unable to feed herself and she essentially became emaciated. And then she became institutionalized and sent away from home and forced into a place she didn't want to be. So she started to really mourn the loss that had happened around that time. She started to really separate herself from these visuals and stories she had internalized around the Holocaust. And before that, these things just had never added up. They, she just had not been seeing those connections. And what's hard to explain is that with the ketamine, it's not as though you talk through it. It's like the person with the medicine may be seeing scenes from their childhood or from the Holocaust, or they may just be getting flashes of insight, or they may just be out of their body for a while. And then after the session, start to have sort of fresh realizations about their life or see things in a new way. So it doesn't necessarily happen during the process. It can happen. It could sometimes. Yeah. But sometimes it could be afterwards, like certain awarenesses start to come out and you start to think about things differently. Yeah. And some of it is also what we might call behavioral, like the days after the ketamine, there's an increase in what we might call neuroplasticity or some new neural growth. So this, you try to do the same thing you've done before, like instead of a binge, you want to, you're going to go on a walk and somehow you're just able to do it this time. And so in terms of learning new habits, it can help people learn new habits that they haven't been able to master before. And not always, but this, these are some examples. What about people that struggle with, you know, anxiety or mood disorders like borderline personality disorder or schizophrenia or bipolar, any of these? Have you seen people have success with these treatments for these? So if someone has a depression, you know, low mood, sadness, low energy, and even suicidality, that's what we know the most about, that ketamine is, can be helpful in those situations. I would say also for anxiety, for people, the other ones you mentioned are, are pretty complex. Yes. Like bipolar disorder, borderline schizophrenia. I would say um, that maybe gentler modalities like relational work with a qualified practitioner is a better for uh, first line option. But in some scenarios, like you described before, someone's been doing their work for a while, they're stable and they're hitting a wall and they really want to take it to the next level. It might make sense for them, but it's really case by case in those situations. Borderline personality disorder is something I've spent a lot of time working with, reading, writing about. And uh, sometimes it's not going to be a good fit for these more intense modalities, but sometimes it's really masking complex trauma that has been previously misunderstood. And in those cases, trying uh, innovative modalities can be really, can really make it or break it. And people can really see, have a turnaround. A lot of people are walking around thinking that they have borderline personality disorder and they're never going to get better when they've just never been properly understood. Okay. When you say they've done their work, I think that's a misunderstood 
statement because mm-hmm. you know for somebody I've been in therapy for a year like shouldn't I see results and I always say like it actually takes a lot of time you know to me doing your work is like you know five years it's like right. it's a process a- am I am I correct in that assessment or would you agree with that disagree with that I, I, I mean, personally, I think it's hard to make any blanket statements about such sensitive topics, Okay. but I do see people coming to, uh, psychedelic medicines five, 10 years in. And I, I think that's very appropriate. I think coming right at the beginning is, is riskier. And I do think you're right in like, people are, will come and say, I've done six months of therapy. Am I helpless? And it's like six months of therapy is nothing. Like how long have you been struggling with this problem? 10 years, you know, some of these conflicts are rooted in early childhood and that's good news because it means we can take our time. We don't have to rush to fix it. We're not looking for a miracle cure. We're looking to find a process of healing and that's a lifelong process for (laughs) most humans. But the good news is you don't have to be healed to feel great. You have to be healing to feel good. I love that. That's a good point. Okay. So let's finish off with one last question. What would your, what would you say to somebody who is currently struggling with any of the things we talked about, like struggling with an eating issue or depression or anxiety or, you know, or they have a child that is, or a loved one. What would you, what would you share with them to kind of, you know, uplift them? I would want them to know that there's always hope for full recovery. I would also want them to know that everything that looks like a problem is actually a solution. It's a solution your system has come up with as the best solution it could think of. For a child who feels like everything is out of control, controlling their food intake might be the best solution they were able to come up with. So we have to stop seeing the symptoms as problems and we have to start understanding what function is the system here, is this symptom here for? As soon as we understand that it's a solution that's not working anymore, we can find a healthier solution and we can stop vilifying the person for having symptoms. The person is having symptoms because they're strong, because they've figured out a way to survive. And we have to celebrate that and then help them take it to the next level. Like good for you for finding a way to adapt in a hard circumstance. Now it's not working for you anymore. So you don't have to do it alone. Let's collaborate to figure out a better way to move forward. And the symptoms really are going to go away when a better solution is in place. Like we can knock on a symptom like a hammer on a nail from today to tomorrow. It's not going to go anywhere until there's a better solution in place. So we have to stop seeing symptoms as problems. We have to understand why they're there, what they are solutions to, and put better solutions in place so the symptoms can fall away more organically. And while doing that, we have to celebrate the person because they're not there to drive you crazy or to drive themselves crazy. They are doing the very best they can. And as soon as you help them find a way to do better, they will. I love that. That is so uplifting and positive focused. It's solution focused. And I love that. We really have to remember that what we're seeing in front of us, these symptoms are many times part of the solution. Exactly. Yeah, I like it. So I wanna thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It's fun. The opportunity.
This was really wonderful. Thanks for listening today. I hope you gained insight and awareness and education on this topic. If you are interested in getting in touch with Divi, you can find all the information on the show notes in our episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'm wishing you a wonderful day.